Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Monday. It is the Three Martini Lunch. It's a good thing it's a virtual bar, but it's open. Come on in. Grab your stool. Uh, because bars are not open too many places anymore. It's a growing list of places that are closing bars and restaurants, and some are restricted to takeout. Some aren't allowed to be open at all. And, uh, Jim, that just leads right into our bad, bad, and crazy Martinis today. Uh, the bad is that this is probably going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. Uh, hopefully not in terms of the handling of the outbreak, although that's still yet to be seen, but just in terms of what's being recommended and what's being ordered here. Uh, yesterday, not that long before the Democratic debate, which we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, you had the Centers for Disease Control putting out a strong recommendation, I think it was. I don't think it was a direct order, but strong recommendation that gatherings of more than 50 people should not happen for at least the next eight weeks. That's a lot of things that are going to be canceled. And so if you thought it was just March Madness and and school for the next month, it could end up going a lot longer than that. In addition to that, Jim, uh, I believe Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, was the first one to close all restaurants, all bars, all breweries, uh, with no exceptions. Illinois, I believe, has done the same. California has done it, uh, except for some allowances for restaurants, I think, for takeout. Now New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey have uh, done the same with some exceptions for restaurants, but most of them will be fully closed as well. Uh, You've got more gathering restrictions in place in Virginia, for example. We're now down to 100, but the CDC, I guess, has trumped that. So, uh, Jim, we should let folks know that uh, I will be working from home. You will be working from home for the next uh, foreseeable future here as we continue to produce the podcast. But uh, America is uh, going into hibernation here. Hopefully, we're still productive. The Dow doesn't like this. It tanked hard this morning. Uh, the roads on the drive into work today were like a federal holiday, if not lighter. So uh, this is the new normal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... For anyone guessing, you can pick. This is either this is a very bad martini and a very crazy martini at the same time. So, for everyone out there who's listening at home, which I'm guessing is a good portion of our listeners, uh, I imagine quite a few folks don't have commutes, <laughs> at least the way they used to. Uh, I hope you're doing okay. I know, I'm just going to make one announcement. I was not built for homeschooling. Um, <laughs> if I suddenly run away from this podcast, it's because someone is not doing their homework. Or doing their their class assigned virtual over the computer work uh, the way they're supposed to. I think most of us were like, oh, this is going to be like a like a long snow break or something, or you know, it's like camping or something. You know, we're we're going to be okay. It's like having the power out. We're going to you know, there's a little bit of inconvenience that we can handle with a bit of a, a bit of an adventure. In fact, I can just basically say that the response from my little guys was like, do we have school off? Yay! School off for two weeks? Whoa! Actually, guys, it's school off for a month. What? <laughs> you know, that we, we were kind of now, I mean, if the CDC is saying that uh, they don't want people to have anything resembling large gatherings for the next eight weeks, I don't think I don't think you're bringing back people getting together in arenas before then. So I think the NBA and the NHL and all that uh, are, are pretty much off for the next eight weeks at minimum. Um, I think baseball gets pushed back as well. I think based on concerts, all of our large gatherings are, are off for the next two months, which is really kind of freaky and frightening. Um, the idea of keeping restaurants and bars, as you mentioned, you know, almost, almost kind of hard to get your head around. Um, 
we are confronting something in American life we really haven't confronted. Uh, maybe if there's some folks around who still have memories of, of 1918, um, you know, they, 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 even then they're you know probably 100 and some right now, so they're they're probably not able to kind of share the stories of this. We are in really uncharted territories. I hope we can pull together through this. Uh, on the homepage today, I have a piece where I talk about you know something I've seen in a a video a couple months ago discussing that sometimes you have to you know the reason you see the darkest portions of life is so you can more fully appreciate the good things in life. Maybe this is our testing. This is our World War II. This is our uh, Civil War. This is our you know Great Depression. This is our really really tough time. Hopefully it's it doesn't last more than a few months, and we're all just spending it on the couch watching Netflix, and it isn't that bad. That having been said, this is going to stink for the next couple of weeks. Uh, I hope everybody's doing okay out there. Hopefully we don't get our, our hospitals overwhelmed. I'm hoping that what we're doing now, as people have said, is this you know, much more extreme social distancing that Italy did early in its process. Hopefully we keep that curve flatter. Hopefully we don't have an issue in our hospitals, the number of beds, number of ICU beds, number of ventilators. And maybe if things look good, we can mitigate that. And maybe we'll, you know, in a couple of months, things will be better. But everybody was in a position of responsibility. Guys like Larry Hogan and Governor of Maryland are saying, guys, this is going to be way worse. We need to be prepared for this to be way worse than we think it is. I don't know about you, Greg. I, I thought this was going to be pretty bad as is. Yes. And obviously, uh, the health and welfare of Americans is the most important priority now. But a couple of, of questions do pop into my mind that I want to get your thoughts on here briefly. First of all, the libertarian uh, argument on some of this stuff in terms of the government being able to tell private citizens and private business owners what they can and can't do with their own lives, their own time, their own businesses, especially when a lot of those businesses, if they stay closed for an extended period of time, which with restaurants and bars potentially, could mean they go under. So uh, from the uh, liberty versus uh, safety standpoint, that's a pretty tight tension right now. It is. And I think in Washington, D.C., there was a chain of restaurants that were like, uh, to saying posted a message to Mayor Muriel Bowser that you know basically they had you know discussed it amongst their staff um, and they did not believe the mayor had the authority to do that and their plan decision was to stay open and to practice social distancing with the you know customers that were inside. Um, in case you're wondering, how can the governor shut down a business like that? Just about every in fact every state government has laws authorizing quarantine isolation, usually through the state's health authority. So it's not a matter of these lawmakers just making stuff up. It's been on the books. We just never noticed it because we really have never needed it. Certainly not for on a scale like this. Um, I, look, that's, it, it, there's going to be a tension. I just put a corner post up about this, about the catch-22 before American leaders right now. The more you socially isolate people, the more you save lives, the less you let the coronavirus spread, the more lives you save. That's really, really good and really important. I think most people would say that's got to be our foremost concern. But like concern 1A is that the more you do that, the more the economy takes a hit. We talked a bit about the markets a moment ago. We're talking about people losing their jobs. We're talking about people losing income. We're talking about people losing their businesses. For every business that's getting hit badly by this, the airlines, hotels, restaurants, resorts, uh, basically anything involving tourism, anything involving people going around uh, from one place to another is in really rough shape right now. If you can survive what looks like it could be a two-month window, there's going to be a huge amount of pent-up demand and everybody's going to want to go to Disneyland and everybody's going to want to go to Broadway shows and everything, you know, everybody's going to want to go to sports events and go on vacation and all that stuff. There will be an enormous you know, bonanza for the people who can survive this. The problem, I mean, I mean economically, although I guess technically physically too, um, if you're a business that, you know, the question is how many businesses can make it to that point? Last week I'd said, you know, look, you know, most businesses don't plan for what happens if they shut down Italy. Greg, at this week, we're asking businesses to be ready for what happens if they shut down America and, you know, whatever cash reserves companies have, 
they probably don't have it for what happens if we don't have customers for about eight straight weeks. Wow. Wow. I realize my comments often leave you with a wow, Greg, and that's, you know, there's there's not much else we can say no, <laughs> this... with, uh, with what's going on around here. Right. Uh, you know, Congress is contemplating, the Fed pulled out every every trick in the book, that apparently didn't do too much work. Uh, the latest is that Mitt Romney is joining the Yang Gang, in a sense, and that he wants to have at least temporarily $1,000 a month to every uh, uh, U.S. citizen. We will get through this, but at this point, the government's going to have to just like, you know, one step short of throwing money out of helicopters. Greg, they couldn't even do that because then people would congregate to collect the bills. <laughs> That's right. Is this a bad time to point out that the bird flu has reemerged in the Philippines? Are you kidding me? No. The highly pathogenic H5N6 avian influenza or bird flu has reemerged in the Philippines more than two years after a similar strain affected poultry in the country, according to their agriculture secretary. He said the bird flu was detected in a quail farm in a town I can't pronounce. Testing for avian influenza was done on March 13th after 1,500 out of 15,000 quails died in a farm in another place that I can't pronounce, he said, adding that samples from 30 live quails from the farm tested positive for the disease. So hopefully they got this uh, under control. But yeah, that's about to say right now, the CDC, we're sorry. All circuits are busy right now <laughs> dealing with other viral outbreaks. <laughs> please, please report your medical emergency and you'll be answered in turn. Secondly, Greg, can we please stop naming viruses after droids in Star Wars? <laughs> oh, no, you're not thinking about H1N5. You're talking about R4397, that different one. That one was way worse. Speaking of which, uh, Joe Biden got H1N1 uh, reversed last night. Uh, he called it N1H1. But uh, before we get to uh, the, the real bad martini with Joe Biden yesterday, Jim, uh, what did you make of uh, all the people on, on Twitter and the commentators saying, oh, calm and reassurance in, in times of a crisis, when pretty much all we heard in terms of the coronavirus last night from especially Biden, but also Sanders, was uh, we're going to get people together. We're going to get them in a room and we're going to no, everybody... don't get them together. Don't get them in a room. We're going to have everyone working together. It was it was, you know, so yeah. platitude like I don't know if it was more like something you'd read out of Dilbert or Pete Buttigieg wrote his comments for him. <laughs> um, considering how Biden swept mediocre Tuesday, not so super <laughs> Tuesday, whatever we want to call that day, um, after having a really big win on Super Tuesday. This debate seemed moot even before the country basically started going into lockdown mode. Uh, we saw the move. They were getting rid of the, the debate audience, which, by the way, I think it was the one major improvement uh, of last night, because all of a sudden there wasn't this playing to the audience. There wasn't this, you know, and that's why we're going to make Donald Trump a one term president. You know, if, if you tried to do that last night, it wasn't like even if they wanted to, Jake Tapper and, and Dana Bash were not going to give up, jump up and give you a standing ovation. So in that sense, it was a somewhat better debate, but it felt really moot because Biden is ahead and all the polling indicates that he's well ahead uh, in these states. Oh, by the way, it felt a little surreal to have a debate going on when certain states have decided not to go ahead with their primaries and to push them back a month or two, because if we're trying to do social distancing in some polling places, sure, you're not going to have a lot of people show up. But in some of them in past states we've seen, you do get long lines of people and you kind of wonder how well can you socially distance people when they're all standing online. Uh, inevitably, they're going to be interacting with people. And oh, by the way, who often volunteers to work at polling places? Senior citizens, exactly the kind of people we want to keep away from exposure for events like this. I don't know whether you want to use that you know, meme of the dog sitting in the house on fire saying this is fine. Uh, but this just felt kind of irrelevant to the moment. And I thought it was very revealing that right after CNN finished his live broadcast, Anderson Cooper and the other news anchors switched over to discussing 
the latest developments in the coronavirus effort and various quarantines and efforts against that. It felt kind of silly, particularly to send the second half of that debate on more traditional issues. And what they had to say in the coronavirus, we have one guy who's out of government in Joe Biden, and we have one guy who is one of 100 votes in the U.S. Senate in Bernie Sanders. Neither one of these guys are directing the government. They can criticize Trump all they want. I think there's plenty of room to criticize Trump. But at the end, it's all kind of irrelevant, right? I mean, and particularly when the debate turned to the question of, you know, did Joe Biden ever express support for cuts to Social Security? Can America's seniors trust President Joe Biden to not touch Social Security? Hey, America's seniors have other stuff on their minds right now. The idea of Joe Biden cutting Social Security, besides the fact that, you know, he's never going to do it. He's never going to do that with a with a Democratic House. If he did, I might feel a little better about him. Joe Biden is not here to make really difficult fiscal choices, uh, uh, to push them through Democratic interest groups and to alienate his party. That's not what Joe Biden's here to do. But even if you know, that was an issue, that's kind of far off, right? We got to get through the next couple of months right now. And that's your know, job one, you know, issue one A. The whole night felt like this surreal time travel to time period before we were all dealing with the coronavirus. And it just made, you know, and also besides the bickering about who voted for which vote and bill back in, you know, the 90s, it is hard to think of anything that felt less relevant to what's on the minds of Americans right now. This primary is effectively over. I don't think anything changed it about last night. Um, but no, I don't feel like I'd be worlds, of, you know, so much more reassured with Joe Biden on that. He did a decent job of remembering what he was supposed to remember. Yes, he mixed up the names of the viruses a few times. And, you know, by the low bar of Joe Biden performances, I guess he did OK. And that's probably all he needed to do. But um, this primary has to go on the back burner for the next couple of months. His vagaries uh, just reminded me of the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So what are you doing now? Oh, we're going to have top men on it. OK, <laughs> who? Top men. All right. But uh, here's the real bad martini from last night, because uh, like you said, Biden did what he had to do. That was Bernie's last chance to show Biden was either senile or something else. And it didn't happen. So Biden is going to be the nominee. However, the process ends up working from here on out due to the virus. But what Bernie and other Democrats have accomplished in this campaign means that Joe Biden is going to have a very hard time, Jim, claiming that he's a moderate in this race. He might be moderate compared to Bernie Sanders on some things, who was once again saying nice things about totalitarian regimes. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Joe Biden is now far to the left on a number of things. Here's just a few of the things that he said last night. First of all, oil drilling, ah, over. Number one. No more subsidies for fossil fuel industry. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. How about fracking? No more. No new fracking. Okay, uh, let's go to immigration. Uh, What do you think about sanctuary cities? Vice President Biden, you opposed sanctuary cities as a presidential candidate in 2007. Where do you stand now? Should undocumented immigrants arrested by local police be turned over to immigration officials? No. And what about once you're in office? Um, would you deport anyone in the first 100 days? And who, if anyone, would ever get deported? In the first 100 days of my administration, no one, no one will be deported at all. From that point on, the only deportations that will take place are commissions of felonies in the United States of America. So, so to be clear, only felons get deported and everyone else Period. gets to stay? Yes. All right. Well, let's move on to the Hyde Amendment, uh, which he is now firmly opposed to. He's now fully in favor of taxpayer funding of abortions. The reason why I affirmatively came out opposed to the Hyde Amendment was that if we're going to have public funding for all health care, 
along the line. There is no way you could allow for there to be a requirement that you have Hyde Amendment. A woman who doesn't have the money could not have coverage under health care. Is it really that simple? Because it wasn't back when Obamacare was signed that uh, the vice president uh, decided to change his policy on the Hyde Amendment, which he had supported for decades. I think it was because of this. This is June of last year. But now he's coming under fire from other Democrats. Amid revelations, he still supports a controversial abortion law, the Hyde Amendment, which bans using federal funds for abortion services, except in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. Critics say the law prevents low-income women from access to abortion. And so the fact that he flip-flopped on that, uh, Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren read on the riot act, so then he flipped again, and now he's uh, opposed to the Hyde Amendment. So, Jim, uh, we've talked about him on guns. Uh, he's now embracing free college. I mean, Bernie's job here is pretty much done. Yeah. So there are two things that I think kind of are a natural lead-in to what we saw from Biden last night to the extent he was discussing policy. And, and everybody could see he was clearly trying to make peace with the Bernie bros uh, trying to reassure Bernie Sanders voters, hey, I need you to still vote for me in the general election. Please, you know, please don't stay home. Please don't vote for Trump. Please don't vote Green Party or other third party. Throughout this, this cycle, particularly 2019, you heard a lot of people describing Joe Biden as centrist. And I don't think you'd ever say that he was ever really centrist, certainly not from the perspective of conservatives or, or that. He was centrist within the Democratic Party, right? I mean, there were some Democrats to the right of him, some Democrats to the left of him. Joe Biden, as I mentioned, his, his most natural instinct is that he wants to be the back-slapping dealmaker. He's not an ideologue. And so that's why, you know, when, when primary came, day came here to Virginia, I, I can't see myself voting for any of these Democrats. But if you had to ask me which one is the least dangerous, it's Biden. But last night is a good example of why, whatever my frustrations with Trump, I just can't bring myself to vote for Joe Biden. Joe Biden sees his mission in life is to build consensus and mostly build consensus amongst Democrats. He does not believe that he is here to hold an ideological line against a hard left. And he doesn't really believe that he's he, he's easier time bashing Republicans and, and, you know, holding a harder line against conservative proposals. He is not a conservative by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, it's, even then he says, you know, nice things about Mike Pence and, and Dick Cheney and stuff like that. Joe Biden wants everybody to get along, which is not the worst instinct in a politician. But it also means he really wants to get along with, say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and the hard left. My colleague Jay Nordlinger had a very astute observation last night that every time he had to make the argument against Bernie Sanders, he made some version of like, ah, oh, it's just not pragmatic or ah, it just wouldn't work out that way. There was never a principled, no, this is not how America works. This is never how we've worked. Most of what you're proposing is not compatible with a constitutional republic. We, we've had our revolution. We had a revolution back in the 1770s and 1780s. We set up our government the way we wanted it. We don't need to overturn everything. Our current system of, of free market capitalism, admittedly modified free market capitalism, um, and being a constitutional republic has worked very, very well for us. Why would we overturn all of this? We got a little close to this when he came to the discussion of, discussion of dictators. Um, but, but Biden never really lays out a just you know strong and vehement criticism of the Sanders uh, mentality. And I would say, look, he's trying to build a consensus within his party, but that means inevitably making some concessions to the hard left, which is probably what's going to make him uh, unacceptable to the likes of us. I also want to point out a policy of no more fracking is probably not quite as damaging as banning fracking as Bernie Sanders was proposing. I still think that puts a state like Pennsylvania really at risk. And I think the Democrats have no idea how dangerous a proposal that is uh, come November.
That's true. And don't forget in the uh, Politico debate, it was a few days before Christmas, so not that many people watched it. But he told Politico's Tim Alberta, a National Review alum, uh, that he'd be more than willing to sacrifice thousands of blue-collar jobs in order to uh, try and shut down fracking and transition to a green energy economy. So uh, that's not the first time he's talked about that. All right, let's move on to our official crazy martini here now, Jim. And gosh, I guess it was about, what, 16 months ago, roughly, that we were in overtime in Florida in two different races, the Senate race between Bill Nelson and Rick Scott, which Scott emerged successfully from, and the governor's race between Ron DeSantis and Andrew Gillum. And uh, we had that overtime because of Brenda Snipes in Broward County and all sorts of vote counting irregularities. But in the end, by tens of thousands of votes, but by fractions of percentage points, both Scott and DeSantis win. And we've talked a lot about Ron DeSantis over the past year plus, about how he's doing such a great job, both as a conservative and as a common sense leader for the state of Florida. Andrew Gillum, meanwhile, just 40 years old, became a CNN contributor and was still thought to have a very bright future in the Democratic Party after being the surprise winner of the gubernatorial primary in 2018. That's all taken a massive detour. This is Politico. I think most of you are aware of the story for the most part. But Andrew Gillum now saying he will withdraw from public life, closing a chapter in his career that took him to the peak of Florida power to a Miami Beach hotel room where he was found inebriated with a man suspected of overdosing on crystal meth. Uh, Gillum was found early Friday by Miami Beach police at a South Beach hotel room with an apparent overdose victim, a man who, according to local media reports, claimed to be a porn star performer and advertised his services as a gay male escort. Police found three bags of suspected crystal meth in the room. Gillum said he'd had too much to drink but hadn't been using drugs. He told officers that he was in town for a wedding. Here's the part that I didn't know till this story, Jim. Friends said he was supposed to officiate at the celebration but was a no-show. So, Jim, um, hopefully he gets his life in order here, but uh, I think most of Florida can exhale a gigantic sigh of relief that that election turned out the way it did. Yeah, um, I I have two thoughts on this. The first comes from uh, Jink Iger, who was the uh, uh, main broadcaster or anchor of The Young Turks, which was a podcast turned into a video series, ran for Congress and and, got shellacked. Um, but he roared to, in defense of, of Andrew Gillum. And he said, the headlines are very misleading. He was not in a seedy motel by himself. He was at a high-end hotel with friends for a wedding. They were all intoxicated, as everyone in weddings are. Even if there was meth, it was on the floor. There were at least three people in the room. Now, many people are pointing out, the moment you come to the line, even if there was meth, <laughs> you're probably not going to have, a, the rest of your defense is not going to, not going to work there. Uh, good, good try there, Jenk, but uh, it didn't work out. Um, my, my other observation: I remember just discuss, covering a report of a scandal on a uh, prominent Republican uh, candidate for office a couple cycles ago, and it was an alleged affair. And I had taken a you know some conservatives had jumped to the defense, and some had said you know I had been you know just reported the facts and I didn't know whether this allegation was true or not. And there were a bunch of people like, I know this person. This person would not do this sort of thing. Well, the short answer is you don't really. Um, health is on our minds these days. The television show House had a protagonist who, whose very cynical slogan was, everybody lies. I hope that's not the case of the world, but a lot of people lie. And I think it's very safe to say a lot of people in politics lie. 
And then as much as you may want to vote for somebody, as much as you, you may want to support somebody, as much as they're saying the things you want to hear, as much as they seem like the kind of leader you want to see in this country, unless you know them personally, you don't know them. You don't know who they are. You don't know um, what they're like when the doors are closed and the cameras are away and, and they're just by themselves. I feel, you know, if, if the, the statement from Andrew Gillum was that he is, uh, after his defeat, he fell into a dark depression. Uh, he turned to alcoholism. He said his father had uh, struggled with that and that he had gone to a deep, dark spiral and he's leaving public public life. You know, whatever our disagreements with him, I hope Andrew Gillum gets his life together. And I hope he finds something that makes him feel happy and fulfilled and he can live many years in a clean and sober and happy and productive way. But the answer is you don't know how somebody's going to respond to something. You don't know how somebody's going to respond to uh, defeat or to challenges or to hardship or to stress or something like that. Uh, and so I, I'm sure there are a lot of Florida Democrats who feel heartbroken this morning, um, who are kind of sitting there and thinking like, oh, you know, what could have been, but also a recognition that, you know, maybe it was always in him to have uh, this kind of vulnerability to addiction, this kind of vulnerability to succumb to temptation when things get hard. Um, it's probably for the best for Florida that he's not in the governor's mansion right now. Uh, you know, hopefully think he has a hopefully he has many more chapters in his life and things turn out well. But I think in the end, you got to recognize politicians are hired help. They are not our best friends. They are not our messianic leaders. They are somebody who we hope can do a good job uh, for a certain set number of years. And then we send them off to go do something else with their lives. Um, and Gillum, you know, has has been someone who, who had weaknesses that were obscured during that campaign. Hopefully he can get on a long road to putting his life back together. So uh, I, I, I take no pleasure in it, but I do think it's kind of revealing about um, the way everybody saw him and the way he actually was, Greg. Jim, another busy news day, like we said. We'll try it from the home offices tomorrow and see if it actually works. Uh, thanks for hanging with us for the three martini lunch. We hope to see you again back here on Tuesday. Uh, Jim, see you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. And now that you're stuck at home, don't forget you can listen to us on the home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcasts. And we will see you tomorrow. Take care.